Hello? Hey, Stryker. Who's this? It's Brett. Um, I'll be there in about seven minutes. You're seven minutes away from coming over? Yep. Hey, do you like um, peanut butter and jelly? I do like peanut butter and jelly. It's my favorite sandwich. Okay. I don't have a sandwich of PB&J, but I have like a snack pack where you dip the cracker into peanut butter and jelly. So I'll have that waiting for you. Dude, that's sick. <laughs> I'll see you pretty soon, Brett. All right. See you soon, Stryker. Later. <laughs> Your name is Stryker? Yes, it is. That's fire. <laughs> wow. I love sandwiches. It's called tuna on toast. I, I, I spit. I don't know what I'm doing. I love music and I love those that create it. Stryker's here. Tuna on toast. Yes. Tuna on toast. <laughs> it's so surreal. <laughs> These artists come to my house. I cleaned uh, more for this session than anyone else. I don't know if that means that I'm trying to impress Brett Gerwitz more. I don't know if it's because I had three red... I don't know what it is. But this episode of Tune on Toast is brought to you by Hammer Toyota. Out there in Mission Hills in Southern California. Johnny, he's the general sales manager. You can see him on my Instagram, Ted Stryker, all the time. He's absolutely the best. So, I'm not saying go run out and get a car right now. But I'm saying... To you this. They are extremely loyal. We've been working together for eight years. Um, they are just the nicest people you're ever going to meet. They just don't buy back Toyotas. Whatever car you have, they're going to buy it back. You want to get a new car or a used car? Just think about it. Just think about that they're cool people and they sponsor Tuna on Toast and the website that you can check out is HamerToyota.com H-A-M-E-R HamerToyota.com before Brett Gerwitz knocks on the front door and steps into my spare bedroom, which is the Tuna on Toast studio, I think I'm going off the deep end. I have a call with my therapist tomorrow and 24 hours from now. We do FaceTime these days ever since the pandemic. It's a FaceTime call. And I, even with him, I I'm, I concentrate on the lighting and the angles. I don't tell jokes. I'm taking, I'm very serious about therapy. But the camera situation, I overly think it with him, and I'm overly thinking everything, including my dog. It was just his birthday. He's 15 years old, but for a year and a half, I've been telling people the dog is 15. I forgot my own age recently, but I'm remembering super uh, intricate details of life, so I don't know what's going on with my brain. And then on my dog's birthday, this dog cannot hear or see anymore. He enjoys his food. He eats cod. I had a 12-minute conversation with this dog on his birthday, thanking him for living such a long life and being such a good dog. And I felt like he could actually hear me, even though he can't. So that's one thing that why I'm going off the deep end, having 15-minute conversations with an animal. Number two, the last four nights in a row, at roughly 3.15 in the morning, I wake up so frustrated because I'm obsessed with my pillow configuration more than ever. And this isn't a new thing for me. But when I was like 25, I have no idea where the pillows came from. They could have been flat as a pancake or as fluffy as 500 cotton balls. But now, so I'm waking up my wife in the middle of the night going, these pillows suck. How come my pillows are so bad? Then she yells at me to go back to sleep. And now I'm, we only have a half a blanket on the bed now because I'm at the point where I'm only sleeping with a blanket that's is like the same thickness as a leaf, and she's got the heavier blanket. It's just, yeah, I think I've been focusing on the wrong things. But this podcast, I'm laser-focused. What is this, episode seven or so? If you are brand new to Tuna on Toast, some of the previous episodes, there's a new episode every single Tuesday, Tuna on Toast Tuesdays. Uh, Tom Morello, Tom DeLong, Mike Shinoda, 
Phineas, uh, this new artist I love called Upsall, and the band, Grammy-nominated band called The Record Company, have all been on the show, and so many awesome episodes are coming your way every single Tuesday. Let's get to Brett Gerwitz. This is a guy who I believe does not get enough credit for his accomplishments over decades. At the top of his game creatively, of course, Bad Religion is a producer and all that, but what about as an entrepreneur? He started Epitaph Records. Most likely some of your favorite bands he signed to that label. I mean, this dude should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Bad Religion should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. What you're going to get in this episode, because I know I got it after hanging out with Brett for about 45 or 50 minutes, it's music education. Uh, Not just punk rock or the SoCal music scene. It's really eye-opening, and he's very open about his highs in life and his lows in life. So without further ado, let's get to it. Here he is, the one and only Mr. Brett, Brett Gerwitz. Test, 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 test. You good? Hello, hello, hello. hello. Great. Yeah, thanks for having the book. That's awesome. Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, my God, dude. You have my favorite Martian. Isn't that who that is? This right here? No, no, up there. That guy. Mr. Hand? Mr. Oh, yeah, from Fast Times. Yeah, oh, yes. oh yeah, well, from Fast Times, Mr. Hand. Yes. But Right, right, but he was my favorite Martian, right. too. Exactly. Like, yeah, when yes. I was a little kid, yeah. Yeah, Mr. Hand. No, I can't believe that you're at my house right now. I can't either. This is really cool. And we were neighbors for, almost neighbors for so many years, I never knew you lived here. So yeah, cool. I've been here for a really, really long time. Did it make you feel like a super, like a, a little kid when you drove by and I was waving to you from the deck? It, it was actually awesome. I was like, there's Stryker. <laughs> That's Stryker's like, house. There's yeah. Brett it's right so there. funny because like, you know, you're a radio personality. I've known you for so many years. We have been friends. We've yes. been friends on Twitter. We've been friends on radio. We've been friends at K-Rock's Acoustic Christmas or the Wiener Rose. But I don't think I've ever seen you outside that. So driving down the street and seeing you at your house was sort of like, oh, He's a real person, actually. Yeah, and I feel the same way to you. He's a real person. And just uh, straight off the top, I just want to let you know how much you have inspired me to break away from K-Rock and do something independent. I didn't do it when I was 18 or 19 years old, obviously, but it's like, okay, hold on. There's an opportunity out there where I can put it all on my shoulders and I can drive the bus any way I want to do it. So thank you for the inspiration. Uh, hey, my pleasure. I didn't, I didn't even know I was doing that, but uh, yeah. It's awesome. Do you do a lot of these things? Like, have you been with Mark Hoppus? Have you, uh, do, do you do a lot of yeah. podcasts on camera and that sort of? I don't do a lot, but when my friends ask me to do it, I do it. So, yes, I, di- I was on uh, Mark Hoppus's recently. And, um, you know, I, I did one about Green Day not that long ago. I did one about Sublime some years ago. It's just, you know, when, when there's something interesting and it's people I care about and who I've been friendly with. Then I do it. How was it with Mark Hoppus? We recently, as you and I said here today, we just got the unbelievable news that he is cancer free. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great podcast. It was a lot of fun. We have so much history together going way back and we know so many of the same, we have so many people in common. So that was a super fun podcast. And, uh, it was before there was any news about his illness. And then, um, you know, I only found out about the illness later and, uh, so it just made it that much more shocking because we had just done that podcast together and it was, you know, it was good times and there's no mention of anything like that. Right. So, um, but yeah, oh, what a relief and such great news that he's doing well. And he's one of those guys, almost no matter what age you are, he has been there for us as a performer and he seems like someone who is unbreakable. 
because you never really hear anything bad that Mark Hoppus has done. He does so much good. And then we got this news and we're all just floored by it. And I think he felt all the love from the world for him. Don't you think? I hope so. Yeah. He deserved to feel it. So I hope he felt it. Did Blink-182, however many years ago it was, 20 plus years ago, ever cross your path before they were signed? Oh yeah. In fact, I, you know, in fact, I, you know, I tried to sign them and you did try to sign them. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking. Yeah. I mean, I was in there and, (laughs) and actually, I mean, in the, in the, in the olden days when they were still, you know, just a baby band, Fletcher came up to me and said, Fletcher from Pennywise, Fletcher from Pennywise came up to me and said, Brett, you have to sign this band right now. Trust me, you have to sign them. If you don't, you'll regret it. Okay. Which is very Fletcher. You know, Great ears on Fletcher, by the way. Kudos to him. And like, you know, I had just signed No Effects and The Offspring, and it was a tiny company. I said, I love these guys. I cannot sign them right now. I'm like, I don't, for, I'm, I'm for like, monetary what? reasons or for just too much time? Too much to do. I was like one guy, and my label <laughs> wasn't taking off yet. I was working two jobs just to have a label. I was working as a recording engineer in my recording studio, which was called West Beach. I was working three jobs. I was in my band, Bad Religion, and I was trying to do Epitaph out of the back office of my studio. So I did, you know, and I said, I just can't do it right now. And then they started to blow up, you know, and, and then I said, oh man, I got to do this. And I said, then I, I tried and, but it was, you know, by then I think it was too late, but, but, you know, there's a lot of, there's, you know, there's still uh, a lot of love between me and Blank and they know that, you know, we came up together. So what you looked for in artists when you were in your twenties and thirties, is it, do you look for that exact same thing today or has any, has, are things a little bit different for you, the way you hear and watch artists? Uh, You know, I think I've improved at it. Um, I think I was going by gut instinct when I was a kid. And also, I think I was going by the fact that I was signing my friends and I sort of lucked out that my band was influential and my uh, my recording style that I used for my band was sort of influential so that bands that liked my band were coming to my studio saying, hey, will you record us? And then... Like Fat Mike from No Effects, he's a great example, right? Yeah, Fat Mike heard Suffer. Tim Armstrong from Op Ivy and Rancid heard Suffer. They reached out to me. We wish our record would sound like Suffer. Can we record there? Yeah, come record here. Then we'd they record at my place. I'd engineer them and mix the stuff. We'd become friends. And then I'd say, hey, you want to be on Epitaph? So it, it wasn't like, yeah, it, it, it wasn't a profession. It wasn't even like, a, I didn't think of it as a skill. It was sort of like my band was getting popular. Right. And other bands that liked my band would play with my band and maybe be on my label kind of a thing. You know what I mean? And, and many of those bands got popular, you know, it's just sort of all, everyone influenced each other. We influenced other bands. Then they in turn did great recordings and influenced us. And it it was a virtuous circle, you know? Um, Did you have any role models, not musically, Mm. but on the business side, when you started up, who in the world were your uh, idols or who were you looking at at that time? Okay. So the people who taught me so much, uh, well, there was Susie Shaw from Bomp Records and Bomp is arguably the, the first punk label uh, in America. And there was uh, Lisa Fancher of Frontier Records, who was doing it a little bit before uh, uh, Epitaph, and I almost referred to myself as us. Right. <laughs> that was super weird. Yeah. But she was doing it before I was. <laughs> but, when you know, you have to remember, like, she was doing it, like, a year and a half before I was. Like, the whole period of time from, like, 79 to 87 was... It just went by in a blink, no pun intended. Right. <laughs> uh, so anyway, but also I, I, I have to mention Greg Ginn from SST Records. Oh, yeah, right. Because uh, SST Records were a big influence on me. They were the local 
LA indie label and uh, they had so many great bands. You know, they had Black Flag, Sonic Youth, The Minutemen. And I was a kid going to those shows and I looked up to Black Flag as the big kids, you know? Right. You and I, I think had a similar upbringing, just a little bit of different era. I'm from Southern California, went to public school. You went to El Camino Real, right? Yeah, I, I went, went to Palisades High School. Yeah. But I was not even remotely cool enough to know what a scene was or be part of a scene. Yeah. I played some sports and did that sort of thing. But yeah. how in the world did you even know what punk rock was and what was going on out there? Who exposed you to it? Right. So I wasn't remotely cool either. I mean, that's why I went punk, so to speak. Mm. Um, in my high school, like to be cool, to be a cool kid, you had to sort of look like um, like a surfer. You had to be like a you know like a sporty. You were either a preppy kid or you're you're a a surfer out in Woodland Hills, right? right? Yeah. And um, I had a friend named Tom, and he had discovered punk. I don't know how he discovered punk, but he was a punk, and uh, he turned me on to it. You know, we got into bands that were at first we got into English bands that were sort of. You could read about them in books. You could read about them in, you know, the, the local record store would have uh, NME, like imported magazines right. yes. and so forth. Yep. Yeah. And so, and got into the Ramones, the Buzzcocks, the Clash, the Sex Pistols, sort of the... Many of these bands you played with on stage. Well, no, then I got to very shortly, but you yeah. have to remember. So, so at this time, I was 17 years old when I discovered this stuff. And, and Tom said to me, hey, uh, you know, we are not the only two kids who like punk here at El Camino. There's these other two guys. Can I introduce you to them? Right. And so uh, he introduced me to Jay Bentley and Jay Greg Graffin. Jay Bentley and Greg Graffin. So, yes. In high school. That's unbelievable. They were 15. Okay. okay? And I was 17 <laughs> and, and, and we made a seven inch. And so, yeah, I mean, it, there was no scene to be in. We were instantly outcasts. It was a scene of four. It was the four of us at El Camino getting picked on. <laughs> we weren't joining anything. You know, it was just like we were just, I don't know what the hell we thought we were doing. There were there were like four kids at Taft. Okay. Right? Yes. There were like four kids at Canoga High. And we would find each other like in the parking lot of the Starwood where they used to have shows in the city. You know, you'd have to. And I had my driver's license because I was uh, 17. <laughs> So I would drive, and I would drive, you know. Greg Graff and Jay Bentley, 15-year-olds. You're driving everybody around. <laughs> yeah. Did your parents or brother, do you have a sister as well? I have a younger sister. Okay. Yeah, but, yeah. Did they say, wait, what, were they similar to you? Were they like, what are you, what's going on here? Nobody was similar okay. to us. Like, <laughs> nobody in the world was similar to us. I mean, we would we got 86 from our local Denny's. You know, like it was, you know, you it, 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 it wasn't like it is today. You know, it was like a full-on commitment to be ostracized from everywhere you know wow yeah wow yeah and then so you guys start making songs together at what point did you decide hold on i think i want to attempt to put this out on my own on a label uh -huh. how did that come about well it was just by necessity it wasn't that I but you're like what 19 or 20 range at that no time? I was 17 17 years yeah, old yeah i mean we made the record <laughs> and put it out so wow. yeah i just we started right away playing parties and uh, playing some underground shows and things like that. And we very quickly, you know, after, after learning about the Ramones and the Buzzcocks, who were like my favorite two at the time, uh, soon discovered the L.A. bands, right? The L.A. hardcore bands, right? Uh, and Like the Germs, Black Flag, and uh, Fear, uh, TSOL, China White, The Chiefs. I mean, there were all these bands playing shows, mostly underground shows and parties. Some of them 
occasionally, you know, some clubs would have punk nights. So we started becoming a part of that. And the smaller bands in that world, or really all of them, uh, were either doing records on little labels like Frontier and SST, right. or they were just putting out their own 7-inch. And so, you know, I was industrious, and I, was, and I figured out that the way you do a 7-inch is that you find a pressing plant, and you borrow a few bucks from your dad, and you do some art on it, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, you, you know, you, and, and you get the thing recorded, and you put it out. And so basically, it wasn't about, oh, I'm going to do my own label. I wanted to have a 7-inch that I could drive over to Rodney Bingenheimer. I'm K-Rock, the world-famous Rodney on yeah, KROQ. Drive over there. Yes. And go upstairs where his little studio was and say, will you play this? And did you, know you give I mean? it to him? I did. Greg Hetson did. Because oh, oh, Greg, Greg, yeah, yeah. So Greg was in the Circle Jerks, and they were a popular yes, punk yeah, band. Yeah. We, weren't, we weren't yet, and he, he um, took us under his wing. You know what I mean? He said, hey, let me go bring this to Rodney for you. Did um, Rodney spin it? Although, you know, Keith says that he was the one who did it. So anyway, <laughs> but I, my memory's not that great because I was, you know, it was a long time ago and yes. I was also, you know, having fun. Yeah, you fun. were going yeah. up the deep end a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So it was one of the Circle Jerks brought it up to Rodney and he, he started playing it on the show. And back then, what kids in LA would do is, because there was no Spotify, right? Of course. Or and there was no, media. and there was no punk on the, on uh, daytime radio. So punks would record Rodney's show on cassette. And then you'd have these collections of Rodney's show of all the bands. He'd play new bands from England or new bands from L.A., you know. And sometimes he'd play you if all you had was a tape. But if you had a seven-inch, you know, there was a really better wow. chance he'd play you. So our song, Bad Religion, got popular in the L.A. punk scene from kids taping the Rodney show. And that was one of the great, you know, that's sort of the beginning of... Did you feel the excitement when you knew that your song was on oh, the radio? Dude. Was it validation? Or were you old enough to even yeah. know what validation yeah. was at that time? What no, was it I didn't like? know what the feeling was, but it did feel that for sure. And hearing it, like, you know, waiting out in the car for Rodney to play it and having yeah. the radio turned on and then hearing it come on. He pronounced our name wrong. He's called us Bad Relgion. <laughs> Which is, to this day, is like an inside joke in the band, you know. But you have to love Rodney because that's of a course. very, that's a Rodneyism. You know? Right. So Rodney yeah. was always, he was the quickest, fastest to play songs on the air. He had a great ear. But Rodney yeah. is known at times, and this is not a knock at all, yeah. to sometimes get a little bit spacey oh, when he's totally. doing the buildup, which yeah. makes him so freaking charming, though. Totally. No, yeah. but yeah, it's, he, was, he was instrumental for us. But so to answer your question in a very long-winded way, That's right. there was never any ideas about the music business. There was never any idea to get signed or to start my own label or to... It was just punk bands have seven inches. Yeah. We want to be a legit punk band. How can we make a seven inch? Brett's dad will lend him 1500 bucks. He's going to do it. <laughs> so I pressed him up. I figured out how to make a, how to, how to get them pressed at a place called Alberti. Um, it was a pressing plant. We assembled them in, in my mom's family room, you wow. know, in Woodland Hills, wow, wow. sitting on the floor, you know, we would like write little things and put little things in. In, you know, in the seven That's inches so for people. Cool. And then I just, and then I used to drive them around to, uh, there were like about six punk record stores or they were really, they were indie record stores that carried imports and punk rock, right? So they carried a lot of English imports and some local punk rock. And so there were Zed Records in Long Beach, Moby Disc in, L, in, in the Valley, um, Middle Earth in Downey. And so I would just drive there in my car and put, 10 Bad Religion 7 Inches, that was our first EP, and they would let me put them in there on consignment. And then when I went back, they were all sold, and i give them 10 more, and that, that's literally how it all started. So Okay, Brett, 
all of everything you're saying so far makes it look so easy. We're kids. I got a label. I'm driving around everybody. There's <laughs> yeah. a punk scene. Yeah. But was there any sort of struggle where you're getting in front of an audience? And it doesn't matter if it's a punk audience, any sort of savvy audience. If those on stage aren't doing a good job, you're, people are going to be like, I don't, what is this crap? I don't know who they are. Did that happen to you? No, it wasn't even like that. Punk rock at that time was such a DIY, homegrown, mm. teenage thing. I mean, our very first show, we only had like seven songs. We played in a warehouse with social distortion. Some kid's dad had a had like a, a cardboard warehouse or something. A PA was set up. We played on the floor of the warehouse. We played eight songs. There were like 20 kids standing in front of us. Fast songs, two-minute songs, right? You're yeah, in, you're yeah, yeah. Just song. You go, you go, you go. Fast. I can't yeah. even play that fast anymore. They, <laughs> they can, but anyway. And, you know, and my friend Tom said, dude, you guys were amazing. If you don't break up, you're going to be huge. I swear. Just don't break up. That's what my friend Tom said to me at that time. And um, that's the, you know, when I work with a young band who's great or a yeah. young artist who's great today and they ask me for advice, a lot of times that's what I say. It's like, you know, you have the talent, you have the vision, just don't give up. If you don't, don't give, give up, up or don't break up. Well, if you're just a person, then it's don't give up. Right. But if you're a band, don't break up. Yeah. Because there's something to be said for playing with the same group of guys for a long time and getting some chemistry. But either way, or if you're just an individual artist today and, you, and you're a singer songwriter, just... Give it time, right? Don't give up. Don't quit before it happens because there's a lot of people out there who are talented, you know, and there's a lot of people out there in the world who can work hard, but you need to give it a chance to happen, you know, and if you, if you can outlast the others, that means you have grit, you know what I mean? And, yeah, and you're going to yeah. get your break, you know? But what would you say, or what, what do you think are the top few reasons why a band who does great and their first one two three albums whether it's like a system of a down or maybe even rage against the machine like hall of fame status yeah they've they people gravitate towards them and then it stops happening i'm not saying for those bands specifically but yeah. from your experience what is it that drives something between artists in a band yeah um that's very hard to say but i think sometimes when a band gets too huge too fast then they become intimidated by their own legacy it's not that it's not that they don't get along with each other so much, even though sometimes it looks like that from the outside and might they might even tell themselves that's what it is. But you know, if you had a massive, massive success on your first and second record, right? And you So you it's know, not a slow build, it's like, okay, we we can sell at the Roxy and the Troubadour in LA. And now all of a sudden we're selling four hundred thousand copies a week of our album. Right. And then you and then you're sitting there and you're saying well, that was a whirlwind. How did I make that record? I hope I can make one that lives up to that one, right? Right. It's like having, you know, it's like, I can't imagine what it must be like to be you know, like uh, Sean or Julian Lennon. Yeah. How do you live up to your, what your dad did, right? Um, it's impo right? absolutely impossible right. to well, do that. So, right. So, it's the same thing being an artist. The me that wrote Stranger Than Fiction, that's not me anymore. Like, I, I, I think of that as a person who I'm in awe of. Right, right. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'll think. How did I write, how did I write Stranger Than Fiction? How did yeah. I write that song? Yeah, or how yeah, did yeah, I write yeah. that album? Yeah. You know, yes, thank you. And so you can't think about that stuff. But I think sometimes groups who had sort of astronomical success early become they have a tough time living in the, in their own shadow. Wow, living in the shadow of their own legacy. That's that's my, that's my guess. That's good.
And speaking a bit to that point and becoming a huge band, uh, I want to read something to you, Brad. This is from the book. If you guys didn't know, there's a book out called Do What You Want. It's the story of bad religion. And Brett, I want to read uh, just something in here to you quickly and have you respond. There was an opportunity for you guys to go to a major label. I mean, you're on Epitaph. Right, after and, a while. Yeah. And the offers are coming in from the big labels like Atlantic. Record companies were paying close attention to Bad Religion's rise from a DIY hardcore band to a punk powerhouse and indie crossover contender. With the success of Nirvana, major labels were giving huge deals to punk, post-punk, and indie acts in the hopes of finding a band that could generate hits in the new alternative markets. What was it like mentally for you and as a band making that decision to go yeah. to a major label, and was it beneficial for you? Well, you know, look, at in retrospect, I, I, I would never regret anything because I've had a great life, both personally and creatively. Yeah. And I think the band would agree. They have, too. There's no, there's no reason to regret the past. In that moment, though, it was complicated for me because I was proud of my art, which is my writing and playing in Bad Religion. And I was also proud of my creation which was epitaph which was my sort of uh entrepreneurial output right. you know, uh, outlet right and that was that's a creative thing too and so i was proud of both and uh at the same time when they when when the major labels first started showing some interest epitaph was doing very well but we never had a big hit under the labels umbrella right right we had okay. pretty I mean, we'd have big you know at that moment Bad Religion and Fugazi were probably the two biggest punk bands in the world. Mm. Both of us were selling out the Palladium. Uh, both of us were selling, uh, you know, shipping 100,000 records on, a, you know, when, when we dropped a new record. So, you know, those are big accomplishments for, for an indie label. And, of course, uh, Fugazi were on Discord, Ian Mackay's label, and, right. and Bad Religion were on Epitaph. And who were some of the bands on Epitaph at that time? We had No Effects. We had Rancid. We had Pennywise. Uh, we even had Offspring prior to their so prior to Smash, right? right? So it was big. It was happening, right? But but we never had a gold record, for example, right? Gold is five hundred thousand albums sold. in the U.S. That's correct. And so you know, I wondered if an indie could have a gold record. And that's what the majors will tell you. They'll say, well, you know, you need our help. An indie can't really do that. And you're doing amazing, Brett. I'm sort of an egomaniac with an inferiority complex, okay. right? Like I have a lot of self-doubt, right? And sometimes I overcompensate with ego, which I try not to do and, and anymore. But, but that's kind of an apt description of how, I, you know, who I was at that time, right? And I, so I did have a lot of self-doubt. I was like, yeah, I don't know. I wonder if we can do it, you know? And so... So on one hand, when Atlantic Records came to sign Bad Religion, I wanted to try it. You know, I wanted to see if they could make us as big as Nirvana, for example. Right. Okay. But on the other hand, I wanted the band to say, no way, Brett, we'll never leave Epitaph. We love you and you've, you know, this is a punk label and, you know, we can do it. We don't need them, you know. But anyway, so that's, so that was the conflict. Okay. But I couldn't let the band know I was feeling that way, right? Because I didn't want right, to hold right. them back, right? So basically I was... I was in the position where I said, you guys, I think this will be a great idea. We should do this. And I was kind of maybe secretly yearning for them to say, no way. <laughs> but, but everyone was on board? Yeah, everyone was on board. And I was on board too. Is it, you know, was, uh, but I felt that was the compassionate way to play it. Because mm -hmm. honestly, I didn't want to hold the band back. And I didn't know if maybe Epitaph was holding the band back. So we signed to Atlantic. Five minutes after that, the offspring went multi-platinum. 
10 million records sold. You're talking about Smash, the album yeah. from the Osprey. Right. You're so, an independent label, Brett. Right. You signed Osprey 10 million. Right, right. And so, and, and yet my band now is on Atlantic. <laughs> Are you like, what the F am I, what did I just do? In a way, it was sort of like, oh, oh wow, there's my answer. I don't need a major label. You to didn't do this. just go uh, gold yeah. 10 times here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it, for a while, before Adele, it was the biggest independent album of all time. Wow. Yeah, for many years. Wow. It was a massive, massive hit record. And I'm very grateful to The Offspring for that. Without social media and without really a ton of radio play, you did say some late night with Ronnie on K-Rock. What was your plan for, at that time, for spreading the word? How are people supposed to know of bad religion that live in Boise or uh, upstate New York? In the early days, it was through this sort of um, grassroots network of zines, right? And which was a sort of a, a rich cultural uh, tradition of punk. So, because uh, punk has a DIY ethic and... A big part of that is not only doing, um, you know, booking your own tour and and so forth, but also making your own zine. So there were punk scenes all around America, and each local scene had their own zine, you know, and maybe the most famous one from L.A. is Flipside, mm. and the most famous one from uh, the Bay Area was Maximum Rock and Roll, but, you know, there were, there were uh, many other zines for every... Um, uh, seen around the u.s and so you would mail your records out to the huh. zines you know and, and you, you were doing you, all that yeah <laughs> i was doing all of that stuff yeah you. so it was zines wow. and zines would be you know you would subscribe to zines you would sell them at shows you would trade them you would uh, could buy them at at the cooler record stores would have them in the news rack so I go to page 110 in the book and this is why you are mr brett and the wizard that i know <laughs> of, okay Kelly Slater, professional surfer, reaches out to you a zillion years ago. Yeah. Was not on top of the world as a surfer at that time, I don't think. But he gives you a call, and he says, um, hey, is this Brett? And you're like, yeah. He's like, my name's Kelly Slater, and I'm a surfer. And you're like, I know who you are. And he says he's putting out a surf video um, that he's going to sell at skate and surf shops. How much would it cost to put bad religion music in my videos? And your answer is... It won't cost anything. He goes, really? <laughs> and you say, put as much of my music in your videos as you want for free. I would be totally stoked. You didn't say totally. I yeah. added that. Yeah, yeah. But I would be stoked if you did that. That's right. Yeah. So major labels must have been saying, hey, if you want to use this band, uh, you got to pay us whatever, 8000 50000 So how, like, how did you know that that was the right thing to do? I didn't know it was the right thing to do. I just wanted our music to be in that video. You know I mean? I just thought it would be cool and it would be a cool way for people to hear the bands, you know? And so what ended up happening with that is that that was a period of time when surfing was sort of having a renaissance, right? And Kelly Slater was one of the great pros that really brought surfing into the modern era. And he became a star. He was one of the first, you know, of the great stars. And, Snowboarding was just being invented, you know, it was really in its, in its uh, infancy. And skateboarding was having a massive renaissance at that time, right? With, we all remember the puffy skate shoes that yes. you could buy everywhere, right? Yes. Like, um, and so, uh, and VHS was the medium of choice. And so people were just putting, you know, making comps of snowboarding, of surfing, of skating. And it became known that if you called Brett at Epitaph, 
he would just let you use the music for free. And all you'd have to do is put the name of the band and the name of the song in the bottom of the video. And that's all I asked. I said, wow. just, and so, um, and that was a, that was a great, uh, lift, not just for punk rock, but for board sports. And then it was a great connection between punk rock and board sports that really lifted everybody, you know? And I right. think, you know, it, it, that led, you know, and shortly thereafter was the first ever warp tour where they, you know, had punk rock music with, uh, with, the uh, skateboarding exhibitions. And, uh, you and know. sometimes when you play some of these video games, like you played it so much that you remember the exact scene in the video game when a certain, when a, and a song would come on yeah. and in real life now, if you hear that song, you think about playing that oh, video totally. game. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's so yeah. cool, man. Yeah. And we had a breakthrough there too. So for example, Tony Hawk, uh, put a bunch of our music into his original pro skater game. So, wow. so that was another break for Bad Religion was <laughs> yeah. uh, our song called You, which I think is from the No Control record. Yep, the No Control album, 1989, track 10. But that was in the, the original Tony Hawk Pro Skater. And to this day, it's one of our biggest songs because it's just so many kids, you know, skated with their thumbs for so many thousand hours to that song, you know, because the way the game works... <laughs> You just hear the same song over and over and over yeah. as you get better and better, you know? Uh, um, was there a point early on uh, with the guys in Bad Religion at that time where you guys had a meeting, whether it was planned or not, or someone from the band said, Brett, look, at you got the label Epitaph. We're on the label. We're doing all this stuff. What are the facts and figures and numbers? What the heck's going on here? Or did everyone kind of understand the business side of it? Yeah, no, um, nobody really asked me about that stuff because I always paid my royalties. You know, I've always, I, I paid everyone fairly and I paid them on time. I, I'll tell you what happened in the very early days. One of the first punk records I ever put out was by the Vandals, uh, Peace Through Vandalism. And... I effed up, right? I, I put it out and I didn't know what I was doing and I spent the money on weed or blow or whatever I spent it on <laughs> and I wasn't responsible. And later when they hit me up, I went to Joey and I said, you know what, man, I know I owe you a lot of money. I don't even know how much. Let me just make it right and give you the masters back, right? Because the masters by that time were very valuable and that was more than compensation. How many years after did that happen? Uh, it was about five years after. Okay. Okay. But then, uh, and that was probably around 87, right? Because I started doing, you know, the first Bad Religion record was like 81, 82. And that's around when I did Peace of Vandalism. So when I, when I decided to really do the label um, seriously, it was around 1987. And we started with like L7's debut album and Bad Religion Suffer and a couple other records. I just uh, made a vow that... No matter what, I was going to pay fairly, pay on time, keep good records, keep my nose clean in business. Like I learned my mistake from taking my eye off the ball and not doing that properly when I was like a 19-year-old whacked out of my brain. Yeah. And I said, if I'm going to do this for real, I'm going to get a reputation for honesty and straight shooting. And, and that's going to be the, like... That's going to be what I rely on. You know what I mean? And from day one, I've done that. And I think I have a reputation for that today, too, which is, I don't, you know, it's a shame I have to say it, but in the, in the music business, there's not a lot of that. So, is the you know. what happened with the Vandals super early on? You just told the story. Is that what led to your sobriety? No, no. I got clean the first time, April 14th, 1987. And what led to my sobriety was that I can't handle drugs and alcohol. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I guess I guess you could say my lack of sobriety is maybe one of the things that contributed to me not uh, not handling things that well as a teenager. But teenagers aren't really suited to make to run businesses anyway. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I from April fourteenth, nineteen eighty seven, to roughly ninety four, I was uh, I was sober, mm-hmm. and Bad Religion put out a record a year for seven years. Right. Right, that I mean, is it was, unbelievable. It was an unbelievable and output, yeah. and you were sober during that time. I was sober, probably in the studio time. 18, 20 hours a day, and then in the going studio on the road. 100 hours a day. Yeah, I mean a week, <laughs> not 100 <laughs> hours a day, at least. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I was doing 100 hour weeks. It was insane, and put out seven bad religion records. Put out a bunch of no effects records. Put out, I mean, crazy amount of workaholism. <laughs> right. Um, in '94, the roof blew off and we had platinum records for offspring gold records for bad religion gold records on another label gold record with rancid uh pennywise were darn near they're doing three hundred thousand copies of each record so so yeah and so what happened is after seven years of being a workaholic and and keeping my nose clean and being sober and being i suddenly found myself much more successful than I ever thought would ever happen because that's not what I was, you know, I wasn't ambitious for success. I was just a creative maniac. I was just trying to make music, you know? Right, right. And then uh, uh, I had this massive business and financial success and it messed me up and I, I uh, fell off the wagon. How long did you fall off the wagon for? Uh, until December 21st, 1997. That's wow. my, so that's my current clean date. Did someone reach out to you to say, Brett, what's going on here? Or you knew that you needed, oh, God, what the heck's going on? I yeah, need- somebody reached out to okay. me in the Los Angeles Police Department. Mm-hmm. And I had uh, a sentence of six months in county jail. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I, had, uh, I was convicted for possession of uh, a couple different class one narcotics. And I was, you know, I was a rich, weird guy living in the Hollywood Hills on drugs at that point. Right. <laughs> um, it was a low point. It was not a low point. Financially, it was a low point spiritually. It was spiritually and emotionally bankrupt at that point. That's tough so, being emotionally and spiritually bankrupt. No I matter was, how much yeah. you have in your actual bank, if you don't have those other That's two right. things, what do you got? Well, yeah, exactly. And I was, I was, you know, I think that, uh, you know, getting arrested probably saved my life. Wow. So, Brett, when you are working with a young man or a band that's been around a while, I'm sure you can spot very quickly if somebody is maybe having a problem. Yeah. Yeah, but is that on you to reach out to <laughs> say to this person, "Hey, we need to have it," or is it they're going to live their life and they'll figure it out? It's not on me to fix them, but it's on me uh, to share freely what I've been given, right? Which is my experience, right? So it's a way that I can uh, turn a negative into a positive. That this, you know, and that's one of the reasons I can say what I said at the beginning of the interview, which is, you know, all these years later, I don't have any regrets. Because the adversity I went through has, uh, has taught me life lessons that I can use to help uh, kids today who are having similar struggles. Because the same thing keeps happening. It happens with every generation. Uh, young people go through the same difficulties that I went through. And having gone through some of the heaviest things imaginable means that someone else who's going through that can trust me as someone to talk to because they know I've been there. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not just a suit. Right, of course. You know, I've yeah. been in a band. I've uh, I've struggled w- with addiction. I've written records. I've produced records. I've mixed records. I've you know, what do you want to talk to me about that might happen to you 
in this world of music that you're in. I probably have an experience with it and I can give you some real talk. It's awesome. You know? Thank yeah. you for sharing that. Yeah, sure. When uh, Bad Religion was making a record a year, basically, or maybe every two years, you think that'll ever happen again with artists as we move forward? Is that is that too much for the public to consume at once now? Like, here's seven new songs every year, seven more, ten more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and those records had 15 songs on them, so there's... Uh it's it's basically 15 songs a year. So I will say, yeah, because I think I think what's happening nowadays is the most most prolific of the young artists are, are dropping a song a month. A song a month. Yeah, I see that happening. Wow. Yeah. When you're dropping a song a month, it's it's you know, you're dropping two minutes and thirty seconds. You're you're dropping three minutes and thirty seconds, right? And if it's a good song, then someone goes, oh, man, the striker dropped a new song. Let me hear it. I mean, it's two minutes from your life. You're going to listen to it, right? Right, right. And if you liked it, you don't mind getting, doing that again in a month, right? On the other hand, and that's why that's the new paradigm, because there's, it's so much easier to get your music heard by the whole world today, right? You can make a record on your laptop in your bedroom and put it up through DistroKid so that everybody in the whole world can hear it on a device that's in their pocket, right? Anybody can do that today, right? And so because of that, there's way more artists. And because of that, you have to have a following before you can drop an album, right? In other words, you yes, know, you can drop sure a song, that. and if you drop a song, maybe someone will give you two minutes of their day, right? But if you drop an album, you're asking somebody to give you 40 minutes of their day. Right. And if they don't know who you are, <laughs> they're not going to do that. It's no, like, hey, man. <laughs> they're not going to invest that time. <laughs> no way, right? So, yeah, so, you know, so that's, and that's kind of what we're doing now. And that's why it's, it's interesting, but that's why the music business today is a little bit more like it was in the 60s, where bands did singles until they were popular, and then they'd drop an album. That's you know? the strategy. And that's what, yeah. I just came up with an idea. What about we put out one of my interviews a month on vinyl under Epitaph? Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> one thing that I did not appreciate about Bad Religion, and I'm such an idiot, for not doing this is after you put out so many songs and so many records and you've been doing it for such a long time, you guys still came with songs like Los Angeles is burning new dark ages, the devil in stitches, yeah. separate albums, of course. Yeah. Um, my sanity yeah. looking back, like uh -huh. yes, bands that have been around that long make new music, but you guys had songs that were very sticky still. And that people oh, wanted you. to hear at con like if you don't play my sanity or Los Angeles is burning, f you guys. Ah, oh, thanks. Yeah. yeah, how important is it for Bad Religion to continue to make new music? Oh, um, I don't know. I mean, I think that I think the answer to that question would vary if you ask me or Greg Graffin or Jay Bentley. Um, I think right now the most important thing for the band after the pandemic is to be touring, right? They're it's. They miss touring. The fans miss seeing them do live. Do you miss touring? I, I do miss touring once in a while, but I have Epitaph, and I've been working, you know, at what I do now for so many years without touring that, you know, it's, it's more like a, a sentimental kind of nostalgia. It's not like, you know, but those guys are aching to tour. I mean, they're, those guys are road dogs. You mm. know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, I'm sure it, it seems to you like I've been touring the whole time because I always played the Acoustic Christmas. No, but I know that there were many, many times where even yeah. when you were part of the band, you were not out on the road I playing the shows. couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. I'm really, running, I've been really running the business, right? But when Bad Religion are in the studio or when they're ramping up for a record, I'm in there writing, I'm in there producing and so forth. But Is there a new Bad Religion and is it coming in the next two months, two years, one year? 
I think their next, you know, the Bad Religion oh. now have a tour on the books. Okay, you know? a tour. Let's go out there. Let's yeah. play a bunch of songs yeah. and have some and fun. And okay. our last record was called the the Age of Unreason. Yes. And it was sort of a uh, response to Trumpism and all of that because obviously it's not, uh, it's it's no secret that we're pretty progressive <laughs> being punk rockers. And it, we're proud of that one. And so if there's a new Bad Religion record, which I have no doubt there is, uh, it's incubating in Greg and my brains right now. And are you still going to do it where you each have to come in with a song every single day and go have coffee and meet? Uh, <laughs> Is that going to be a strategy? It's like that. I mean, it, we we write our songs, right? And he right. writes his in New York and yes. I write mine here. And right. then we send them to each other. Yeah. And it's, and it's a friendly competition. A and then, right? Yep. He improves my melodies. I improve his arrangements. We give feedback on each other's lyrics. Yeah, for sure. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. Bad religion needs to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I care about this stuff. <laughs> I do. And I don't know, some artists, I don't care. But for the bands that helped Do you shape, have any influence there? <laughs> I don't really have any influence, but Tom Morello now does. And I was discussing like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with him recently. Oh, is he on the... Uh, yeah, he, he's in there now. And what uh, he is attempting to do is get some of these bands... Like Depeche Mode just got in, Nine Inch Nails. Deserved. But, yes, yeah, of course. Deserved. Jane's yeah. Addiction is not in, Rage Against the Machine is not in. But before yeah. some of these bands that inspired and influenced me can get in they got to take care of some of these ones from 1965 through 1980 that got didn't get the respect that they no, should have totally gotten. understood yeah that's that's totally understood and you know if, bad religion never got on on the cover of rolling stone <laughs> and uh we never feel, will <laughs> you've underappreciated no no okay. i I, uh, I i make a joke about that but uh one time we almost got on the cover of Rolling Stone Australia. <laughs> One time. <laughs> I said, come on, man. This is our chance. Just put us on the cover. Well, um, listen. I, 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 I give it yeah. to my mom. <laughs> It's crazy. There's a few bands out there, and you're one of them. Everything you as an individual has done as an artist under the music umbrella, you should be in the hall. The band Bad Religion Thank you should so be much. in there that's, as well. And I, a, yeah. I, I don't know what or who we have to talk to, but uh, it should happen because all the fans what that started listening to you and following you in the late 70s, early 80s, we would be overjoyed with excitement for you guys. I would be so happy for my band if that could happen. Because, but, uh, you know, more than anything, it would be it would be nice for my kids, I think. Oh, that's, <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, the truth of it is, I think that... Um, Bad Religion have had some wonderful accomplishments. We've had people uh, throughout our careers come up to us in the street and say, thank you for being the soundtrack of my life. And that really means more than anything, any kind of a trophy, you know? And and to be honest with you, it, it would be an immense honor to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But the truth is, I don't really care about trophies. You know, I... I uh, I don't I don't have any gold plaques or platinum plaques in my office, even though I've earned a lot of them, because I don't I don't like to think about my past achievements. I like to think about the the, the stuff I'm working on today, you know, and uh, that's cool. It's always nice to be acknowledged, but yeah. but yeah, it's not about trophies. It's about putting music into the universe, and what's what could be a better job than that? We're gonna wrap it right there. What a perfect ending to this. Oh, thanks, man. Brett, thank you so much. Thank you. Wow. Okay. I mean. What an honor. I have like chills right now that this just happened. Aww. I have so much appreciation for you, everything you've done, and the band. Likewise, man. You've always been there for us, and I've always appreciated you very thank much. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening and finding this podcast, Tuna on Toast. Spread the word. He is Brett Gerwitz, and I am Stryker. See you guys later. Cool. Thanks again. That's another episode of Stryker's Tuna on Toast. 
promise it'll get better. Most likely. For sure. <laughs> Maybe. Holy mackerel, am I inspired and enthused by that. Unbelievable. The great Brett Gerwitz. I say it all the time and I mean it. Thank you for supporting Tune on Toes. It's an independent operation. It's just me and you. We are the only two humans that can grow this thing. So tell your friends, go on Instagram, TikTok, your Facebook, Twitter. If you like any of this, let them know that this is going on. It's Tuna on Toast, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check out the YouTube show. All right, Ted Stryker Instagram, Tuna on Toast Instagram. Have a great rest of your day, and I will see you on the next one. Happy snuggles. Bye-bye.